0: G'day everyone, my name is Tom Craig and you're listening to my podcast, The Helpside, where we speak to some of the most recognisable names in world hockey and get an insight into who they are, what they're about, and what makes them tick. Now, if you like what you hear, feel free to follow our socials at The Helpside on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. We'd absolutely love that. Well, it's our last episode for 2020 and we hope you're all having an enjoyable lead-up to the festive season. And for you listeners locked down, especially in Europe, or anyone else doing it tough at the moment, we're thinking of you. Now, for the next hour and a half, you're in for a treat, and we're very excited to announce that our final guest of 2020 is one of the greatest to ever hold a hockey stick. None other than former kookaburra Jamie Dwyer. Reading through Jamie's list of achievements, both personally and with the kookaburras, is, to be honest, A quite fatiguing exercise and it would take up a substantially greater portion of our time budget than we're happy with. So, among a very, very, very long list of other achievements... Jamie is a five times world player of the year, a former young player of the year, has won every major and minor international competition that you can think of at least once. Been to four Olympics, is the second most capped Australian hockey player in history with 365 games and the leading goal scorer with 243 goals, which is 50 more goals than the next highest. Indeed, there aren't many candidates that can be universally agreed on to be in the conversation for the greatest hockey player of all time, but Jamie Dwyer is undoubtedly one of them. Now, it's easy to look at his achievements and think that things just came easy to someone as magnificently talented as Jamie. But that is frankly just not the case. For example, Jamie was 25 years old at his first Olympic Games when he rocketed to fame with the wider audience with his gold medal winning goal versus the Dutch in the extra time of the 2004 Athens Olympic Games. Before that, there is a cracking story to be heard about how this kid from country Queensland became an Aussie icon. Now, over the next two episodes, we'll cover a lot. From his journey to crack the team to how he became the best player in the world to overcoming major injuries, to dealing with team dynamics, to a blow-by-blow of that goal in Athens, and how to deal with pressure, to his take on crafting the ultimate team, to retirement, to running a successful business, and finally, to where he thinks the sport of hockey needs to go in Australia. I can assure you that it's all absolute gold, and you will not want to miss a single second. So let's go. Here it is, the help side, with the great man that is Jamie Dwyer. Merry Christmas. Jamie Dwyer, thanks for having me. No worries, good to be here. <laughs> We're here in uh, your home in Perth, um, and you're pretty well settled in, despite being an East Coast Australian. You, you're a Perthian now, you live in Perth, you're from Perth. Do you identify as a, as a Perth person?
1: Oh, uh, yes and no. Um, sometimes I say, like, I'm going home and I'm going back to Queensland, because uh, all my family's, like, sisters and mum and dad, aunties and uncles are back there. But uh, yeah, it's becoming more and more, I'm feeling more and more like a Perth boy, WA guy. Uh, my kids love it here, my wife loves it here, and yeah, set up pretty nice. So it's a, it's a great state to live in, a great city to live in. So at the moment, I'm happy being here, and <laughs> I'm happy my family's happy.
0: Did it, uh, did it take a while to get used to get used to Perth, or how long...
1: Yeah, yeah, it did, because uh, I moved over here in 99 uh, 21 years ago, and I just thought it was like temporary sort of move just for hockey, um, I thought, give hockey a go, see how it's going to, you know, hopefully play for Australia, and then when I stop, I go back to Queensland, that was always my plans, but plans change, and um, yeah, like I said, I am very happy, yeah, whether I'm in Queensland or whether I live in Perth, I think anywhere in Australia is really, really nice. Mm.
0: It's funny how that happens, like I think a lot of people move over, they have... That sort of idea—they come over for a bit, they eventually move home, and then all of a sudden, you blink and 21 years later, <laughs> yeah. as you say, yeah. 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 Was I'm there? Not, I'm not the first one either. No, 100. Was... was there? A, was there a moment where you're like, "We're just going to stay. This is it." <laughs> yeah, it was actually. Uh, that was when my wife bought the house when I was over at the
1: Olympics <laughs> <you know? laughs> in 2016. 2016,
0: uh,
1: we'd lost to Holland in the quarter, and then. Uh, Get a phone call the
0: next day. Welcome home, present.
1: I'm gonna put in an offer for a house, and I was a bit under the weather, and um, I said, yeah, yeah, okay, whatever. The next day, at the same time, eight o'clock in the morning, get another phone call. Yeah, we've got the house. That's so, very nice. Uh, she bought me a present when I was away at the Olympics, and that's hilarious. You know, I was
0: sitting in it. Your wife Leonie's actually here. <laughs> <laughs> is that is that how it went down, or what what happened? Was it a complete surprise?
2: Not really, but not for him. He's got the videos and stuff. <laughs> what? He had the sign. So sign that, was the a, that was a bit of a... It was hard to get
1: it printed and stuff. And we, I
0: think, Sign it. Happy days.
1: Yeah, but no, we're happy. And uh, I've made a few <laughs> renovations. And it's a great area. The kids are, kids are in school, sports just around the corner. And lifestyle here in Perth is quite relaxed.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful home. And you're telling me you're a, you're a keen golfer. I think a lot of people who know you and know about hockey... Um, associate you with golf i saw your second set in in the in the back room which is a very very nice set of golf clubs but your first set is at the club at lake carrying up golf course Spend has been a good time there
1: uh yeah every wednesday morning i try and go there it's comp day and try and get out there just to have a putter or a chip around during the week as well when i'm out there and i, I played golf you know i grew up playing golf because my dad played it and loved it and he injured his back, and he didn't play. When I was throughout my career, I'd always watch the golf tournaments, and I'd uh, always go and have a hit. It just made me like not think about hockey or not think about uh, you know the stress or whatever. Mm. I just sort of used it to get away and hit the ball. And yeah, I, I really enjoy it. My handicap's down to three point something now, and um, I'm getting better. So it's just nice to get out there and meet some friends and hit the ball around. Yeah,
0: it's interesting. I think um, a lot of athletes talk about having a a third place or a second place or whatever, something to get away. Was That that was always golf for you?
1: Yeah, for me it was, yeah. Um, Unfortunately, it takes a lot of time, Mm. so I couldn't get away as much as what I would like, but uh, I'd just get out there and go to the driving range and my mind would be off things and it was my relaxed time. Mm. And it still is now with work, you know, it can become uh, quite stressful sometimes Or you're working hard, but just when I'm out there for 4 hours or 5 hours I sort of refresh and um, Wednesday's perfect because it sort of mixes up the week
0: I'm sure a lot of people would be keen to know you. golf and hockey are both ball striking sports but the swings are different and I'm sure one can impact the other sometimes perhaps not for the best As a do you have a hockey swing now or do you have a golf yeah, swing yeah
1: it's, it's a hockey swing I think it always is <laughs> a hockey swing when I try and have a proper golf swing I, I, I don't hit them too well but it's just a short game for me. Um, when the short game's good, I score well. Yep. I've always been able to hit the ball, you know, a long way and been able to hit it consistently out of the middle. It was just the, uh, the short game, the putting, which is <laughs> the problem.
0: Yeah, it's a nightmare for many. Um, let's go back then to growing up, the start of the ball striking in Rockhampton, Queensland, Central Queensland, would you call it?
1: Yep.
0: Early days. When did you start picking up? Oh, Sport. What was it like for you? Uh
1: small town. Something about probably when I was born, about forty thousand people uh, lived in this town. It's the capital B of Australia. Lies on the Tropic of Capricorn. Quite hot place. Um, and it was just all about sport for me. My parents played hockey. My um, my aunties and uncles. I was the first of three kids. Um, two younger sisters. And for as long as I can remember, I was playing hockey. And in the winter, and I played cricket in the in the summer. I tried, you know, I tried everything. I mm. tried golf, basketball, um, BMX. You know, everything I could possibly play. I, I played um, touch touch footy. I played footy until I was. My dad said, "Look, you're a bit too small to <laughs> play footy. Maybe you should stick to touch <laughs> footy." So yeah, everything and. Uh, I was handy, you know, but coming from a small town, the world was so big back then. Uh, moving to Brit, like Brisbane was a, a big city, mm. a big move. So, yeah, it was a long way off, but I was just enjoyed my time in Rockhampton, uh, in a big backyard. Went out there, played cricket, hockey by myself every day um, and watched a lot of you know, hockey and cricket and just become... Pretty good at that hand-eye coordination mm. just because I was out there all day practicing. School? School? You uh, like it? Yeah, there was no hockey at school. I mm. didn't mind school. Um, I wasn't, obviously, I'm not the smartest kid uh, growing up or still still are, obviously. But, um, yeah, I, I enjoyed school. Mm. Yeah, it wasn't, you know, it was pretty stress-free. Primary school was great. Uh, always looked forward to Friday afternoon when we played sport. <laughs> and in, uh, in high school, yeah, it was, a, it was good learning um, and sort of didn't prepare me for life for when I left school, but um, I didn't know how my life was going to turn out. Yeah,
0: and we, uh, we had an Oceania Cup um, in 2019 in Rockhampton. It's a brilliant place and it was very well run, the tournament beautiful quality turfs um, lots of crowd big community kind of environment hockey big in Rockhampton or what how'd you fall Uh, into that
1: I don't think so I just think it was big all around country Queensland all the like Townsville Cairns Mackay Rockhampton Um, yeah I just got into it because my mum started playing it at school she loved it and that's how her and dad sort of met a little bit, and then yeah, it's just in the family. So I just liked hockey because it's fifty percent male, female. You know, it's, you can play it from when you're three years of age to you're eighty mm. years of age. I just loved the sport. I, I knew the opportunities that it could lead me to to travel. Yeah, I was always curious about other places around the world. It's one thing I loved from a very young age. Was you know. The NBA in America, mm. what it'd be like to go to America, or football in Europe. You know, I was like always interested about countries outside of Australia. So I knew hockey would, if I was good enough, could lead me to to adventure the world.
0: We'll jump around a little bit here. You, you're a big sports fan. That's that's very um, very clear. When you were playing, did, you, did other sports influence the way you played hockey? Were you trying to pick up on things that some sports did and tried to bring them into your game?
1: Uh, I tried. Um, I, I really liked people like Cameron Smith from the um, Melbourne Storm, how he approaches his game and how he speaks to the team and just uh, his approach. Um, I don't know, I've never met him at all, but uh, I look at him and he was sort of a role model. Growing up, I had people like Wally Lewis. And, you know, everyone like I, I loved Michael Jordan as well. Obviously, his like just his attitude, his confidence, and how he trained. I thought I looked at those people, like I guess most athletes do, and they try who, who they look up to and they try and add a little bit to their game. There wasn't one particular person. I just I just looked and learnt from lots of different athletes around the world and picked out the good parts of what those athletes did and tried to. Copy it.
0: That's sage advice. I like it. So we're going to go back to to Rockhampton. Um, You said that it was a family thing, hockey, and it's remained very true to this day. A couple of other big um, names in Australian hockey have come out of Rockhampton, and you're related to two of them (laughs) 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 by some way or another. Matt Goads, your cousin, I believe, and Mark Knowles, who is your brother-in-law. Now, what's in the water at Rockhampton? (laughs)
1: I'm not too sure. I'm not sure at all, but uh, it's quite an interesting story that one. But
0: which which one?
1: Oh, all of it, because when you go, <laughs> you know, Mark Knowles is married to my sister, who's now Kelly Knowles, and then Matt Godis, who's my cousin, his mum and my mum are sisters. Is was is married to Jill Dwyer, who's now uh, Jill <laughs> Godas, but Jill Dwyer is no relations to me. So trying to explain that to people when I was over in Holland was uh, was pretty pretty difficult. But um, I do remember back, because we didn't have AstroTurf until I was 17, 18 years of age in Rockhampton. And, you know, juniors would play in the mornings, seniors in the afternoon. And myself and Mark Knowles were there pretty much all day. Mm. He played for a different club than me. And I remember when our parents had finished the games, they were up having a barbecue or whatever. And me and Mark were out in the field hitting hoagie balls at the goal. And he was a little... Uh, cheeky little fella. Um, very cheeky, actually. And he, he learned not to be so cheeky later on in life. But, uh, he was, I remember, yeah, watching him and going, yeah, he's, he's going to be good. He's mm. really good. Mm. Um, and then Matt, who's, yeah, my, my sister's, uh, sorry, my mum's sister's son, <laughs> my cousin, is, uh, he always had a talent and mm. he's, he had two older brothers who were also very hand-eye coordinated and, uh, I think I'd like to think that I had a bit of an influence in their in their career and their mm. path to play hockey and show them that it was possible to come from Rockhampton and play play for Australia and do the things that we did. And both of them had amazing careers and I'm very proud of them.
0: How many years in between you and Mark? Uh, five. Five. So probably not like you wasn't like you two were in the same junior team and no, two no. of the best. Best players Australia's ever produced, just playing in the local rock and Right, Righto. And then you uh, you moved to Brisbane because that's what that's what you do. If you want to pursue your hockey, you come from country towns often and then move to a, a major city to train with the QAS, I yeah. believe, at that time. Mm-hmm. How was that for you? it
1: well, was probably the hardest move, I think, I've ever had to do because um, we had such a big family and I was one of the oldest in our family with all these younger cousins and sisters and grandparents who were quite young. And, just the move to Brisbane, um, yeah, it was. I remember I was scared, I was really scared, but I was sort of excited on, on the other hand as well, um, but yeah, that move was probably hard, really hard. Mm. I trained with the QIS and Greg Browning was the coach and we had a good, good solid bunch of guys there. But I went into full-time work at, um, at a Lincoln, it's called Lincoln Century, which is a, uh, just selling hardware, goods, and training full-time. And I was still at that stage where I didn't know what was going to happen, you know. I, at that stage, I had a girlfriend back in Rockhampton. I, was, I, did, I thought either this is I'm going to make it but or I'm not. And when I was there for those two years, it was more of a feeling that I wasn't going to make it. So I trained hard. I made the Queensland Bladestein. I was lucky I got an invitation over here to Perth for a training camp in 98, I think it was. And I trained with the Australian team, Australian players, and I thought, yeah, then they're good, but I can be as good mm. as these guys. So once I came over here on that camp, I had a belief that, yeah, okay, I'm definitely not there yet, but I can be as good as some of these players, and that sort of changed my attitude a little bit whether I should move back to Rockhampton or stick with it, and yeah, luckily I stuck with it.
0: And uh, there's a couple of couple of things I want to pick up on on that time in Brisbane. Very rarely do we have um, fan questions coming in before the interview, but word got out that I was interviewing you today and a fan wrote in and asked me to ask you what your work day was like at Lincoln Century, because apparently you're a very, very hardworking employee. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yes, um, very, very hardworking. I'm not too sure about that. Right I think it was we started at about 8.30, and depending on training, um, they, I was... They gave me a little bit of flexibility whether I trained in the morning or in the afternoon, but it was a solid eight hours. <laughs> <laughs> we had a packing list, we'd have to go around and maybe get on the forklift. But I didn't have a forklift license, but back then, you know, it didn't really matter. I was picking off uh, stock and just packing it off the list, and you throw your box on this um, on this conveyor belt and goes down to someone to check it, and then gets sent off all around Australia and the world sometimes. But that Lincoln Century uh, the family who owned that were really hockey extended mm. family. And I remember getting in trouble a couple of time, times for, you know, just misbehaving with a, a bunch. of it was about ten of us guys. we were all, you know, all just having fun in the warehouse, and uh, we got up to some mischief sometimes. But in the end of the day, I, I learned a lot from it. To be honest, I I met these guys who were like a team. They're all. Mm from all around Australia. They're all different levels of education and uh, we all communicated in, in certain ways to get the job done and we had the big boss who was, uh, would let us know if we weren't working well, but it, on the other hand, when we did work well, he'd let us know as well. So yeah, it was a good experience, definitely something that I, um, I'll always remember working at that place.
0: And uh, you run a business now um, and you're involved with a few businesses would you would you say that like some of the learnings in how to run a business came from that time? Oh,
1: Sometimes. Some I think that sort of learning maybe helped me more in sport than what in the business I, I run now. And probably sport, what I learned in sport, helps me do what I do now. Mm. With, uh, JDH and, and other business adventures. So uh, it's all a learning curve and sport is very relatable to business, especially the communication side and, and a lot of aspects, goal setting, et cetera. So... Yeah, it's one thing I've always done well, I think, is try to to learn, try to be better, whether it was in sport or outside of sport, whether it's just being a better person. Um, You know, my time at the as I look back on it and I think, I could have done this better, I could have done that better. And in the end, that's going to make me a better father, hopefully, or a better husband and, yeah, better person.
0: Mm. There's one, there's a vicious rumour that I want to address about Lincoln Century. (laughs) <laughs> apparently uh those eight hour work days were um they were broken up occasionally by a nap in the afternoon on on work site can you confirm or tonight?
1: yeah as an elite athlete it's very, uh, <laughs> it's very important that you get rest and you recover well you can ask all the sports scientists out there these days that rest and sleep is the best recovery so, I guess you would say I it was ahead of my time 22, 23 years ago. But because we train early in the morning, sometimes late at night, in lunch break, like there's this mezzanine level where no one went up there because, um, so I just go up there, curl up, and have a little up there on, <laughs> on occasions. <laughs> Maybe sometimes not during my. Um, my lunch
0: break. But yeah, they're probably true. <laughs> That's work-life balance, <laughs> if I've ever heard it. Um, I'm curious about because, um, yeah, if you don't mind me saying, there are very few people who are in the greatest of all time debate in hockey, um, and it surprises me that moving to Brisbane, you were umming and ahhing about whether you would actually make it. And I remember I spoke to um, a, a good hockey coach great hockey coach good servant of the game in in new south wales in particular barry reed i remember he said that um he'd never seen anyone dominate an under 16s tournament like he saw you do it i don't know when that was would have been early 90s i imagine um so he obviously had a lot of talent but the move to brisbane was daunting apparently
1: yeah i've seen a lot of guys have talent and not make it um uh, the move to Brisbane, yeah, it wasn't daunting. It's just I was out of my comfort zone um, mm-hmm. and I was experiencing a world that I didn't know, I wasn't prepared for. And it took me a while to, to get used to that sort of lifestyle and it took me a while to, to realise what, what I wanted in life. Um, and, yeah, I was quite a late bloomer. Yeah, okay, maybe at under-16s and under-13s, I had the skills and uh, technical side. But I wasn't, you know, I didn't play for Australia until I was 22 years of age. That's Mm. quite late these days. Um, It doesn't matter where you are around the world. So it took me a a while between that 16 years, 16 to to 22, those six years of moving from Rockhampton, um, maturing as a player, as a person, um, mentally and physically being ready to to do what I wanted to do. Um, Saying that, I think missing out on... Teams and missing out on AIS selection back in 2000 when the coaches changed, missing, you know, get other people getting to play for Australia before me, who I believed I was as good as, if not better than, sort of helped me and sort of drove me to to my career, to what happened. So, yeah, just it was hard. It's not, you know, it's not easy. If you want something, you want to be good at it. It's, it's not easy, but I um, you know, learned and I was patient and eventually my time came.
0: Mm. And 22, as you say, is a, is a late time, and there was no, uh, did you see people kind of getting picked ahead of you and was that discouraging at all?
1: Yes and yes, <laughs> people were getting ahead, uh, picked ahead of me. Uh, Rob Hammond was make, made the team before me in, in some camps. Uh, Craig Victory went to the Olympics in 2000. Lachlan Vivian Taylor, young guy from Melbourne, who was a couple of years younger than me, getting the go. He went to '98 Commonwealth Games and all these guys. i like, oh, come on, I'm, I'm as good as these guys. Um, I wasn't courageous enough or to go up and have a chat to the coach mm. and say, hey, you know, what do I need to do to to be better? I was a bit immature in that sense, coming from Rockhampton. I hadn't had those critical conversations before, um, so I wish now I had said or asked the question you know what do i need to do how do i need to be better and maybe they could have given me some advice which could have fast-tracked that um process
0: mm. was there a moment you reckon where you figured it out
1: no there wasn't there wasn't a moment where i figured it out it was i remember chatting with paul Gloyne. uh he said look he's going go up and asked him good as he was, was one of the you know, captains or leaders in the Australian team at that time, he goes, go ask him. you have amazing skills. Jason Duff said it as well, oh, you're as good as these guys, why are not you getting to go? I, like, I don't know, go ask them. And um, I didn't, and then Terry Walsh got uh, sacked for, after 2000 Olympics and Baron Dancer came in as head coach. There was one time where, because this whole period, I had no idea I was still going to play for Australia. I thought, this could... I could easily go home because after 2000 Barry, um, when Barry Dancer came in I wasn't in the Australian Institute of Sport they kicked me out of the Institute of Sport so I'm like okay I'll stay in Perth and give it a crack For so this whole time I had no idea it wasn't probably 99 was the one time when I was overseas on an AOS tour where Colin Batch said to me we had a one on one meeting and Colin Batch said one day you'll play for Australia and I was like oh <laughs> someone's finally said it um, because it just seems so I'd, I'd seem like I had a long way to go If I'd ever get there But he said one day you would play for Australia So that gave me a lot of confidence um, Even though I had some ups and downs after that It uh, gave me confidence that one day I'd hopefully play for Australia
0: And then the call up came in 2001 Where was that? What was that? How'd that was uh,
1: Australian Hockey League uh, Barry Dancer came up to me So congratulations you're in the squad And you're going to the, uh, the Men in Cup I think it was The Ocean Cup in Melbourne to play your first game and I was yeah I was over the moon mm. and I thought okay this is awesome finally I'll get a, I'll get a chance and I knew my chance hopefully if it wasn't then it was going to be never so he gave me that chance and I remember going to Melbourne and getting my shirt presented to me from David Wonsborough who i good mates with now and looked up to back in when he was vice captain and playing for the Australian team and uh, they gave me the shirt. And I didn't put it on. I was like, all right, just wait till tomorrow. And once I put it on, I thought there's no looking back. I'm just gonna have to go for this and give this opportunity 100. percent mm.
0: Because it was a different time back then as well. Like now, uh, the Cobras have a squad of 27, and it rotates quite quite regularly. A lot of the a lot of the squad will play all of the squad probably will play a game a year. Whereas back then it was it was run a little differently, and and there weren't the rotations on field either, were there?
1: Completely different. The game's changed so much. Uh, Yeah, you're right. There was, I think, 24 in the squad. There were 16 guys that went away to most tournaments, and you might get one or two that might change. So, yeah, times changed. Um, Yeah, it was different back then. Maybe now, if I come into the era now, if I'm 21, 22, maybe I would have an opportunity. But back then it was a little bit harder uh, to get a gig straight up. But, yeah, it took me a while,
0: like I said, but once I got there, I wanted to make every post a winner. Yeah, 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 sure. We're going to break Jim off there to throw back to one of his Athens teammates, Mick McCann, ripper of an ep. Check it out. And you scored a lot of goals as a kid. I mean, you're a prolific goal scorer as an Australian player, but also in HL for New South Wales. Um, there is a little nugget of information I found online that apparently you had the nickname 10 cents. Is that true? And what is that true. about?
2: <laughs> Tell me about yeah, that. Yeah, my auntie used to give me 10 cents for every goal that I scored. Okay. So, so I said, All right, eh? I said, I'll score 100 goals this year for you. <laughs> I think it was under 11s or something like that. And I scored 119 goals in. 10 games or something like something. and then after, <laughs> after that she said that's it there's no more, <laughs> there's no more 10 cents for you anymore so uh, she continued till I was about 15 or 16 oh seriously 10 cents every,
0: Ten cents every go She's yeah. quite a nice little nest egg there yeah. where did it go I'd spend on lollies or something <laughs> <laughs> was it like was it you'd play 11s 13s 15 did you play multiple teams growing
2: up or sure, hey, sure I mean yeah. we uh, under 11, uh, we had a, a great coach, Laurie Frost. He he wanted – I mean, in Germany, it's different. You can't play men's hockey until you're 16 and four months. Very mm-hmm. precise. In process. Sydney, our under-13 team played as the fifth men's team as well. So, we'd play under-13s. Some of us would then go to under-15s or under-17s, and then we'd play with, a third, or the, with the fifth men's team at 12 years old, you know, and we used to get yeah. thump by on these old guys out of North Sydney or something, just <laughs> these, these little kids, bomb. Um, We used to win most of the time, mind you. Um, but by the time we were 13, 14, you know, I, was, I played my first game with the men's team, I think I might have, before I was 15, I think, with Bankstown. Mm. Um, but he played two, three games every week, every Saturday, two or three full matches. Mm. Um, now we talk about, putting too much pressure on the kids or too much sport with the kids where they play a game and you've got to make sure they rotate and all that kind of stuff uh, different world
0: different world back then more of that way back in episode 7 of the help side but now let's get back to Jamie who's about to talk through his thoughts on how hockey has changed over the course of his career and some of his most memorable one-on-one matchups let's go Let's, uh, let's change tack real quick. Let's talk about um, rule changes because you played hockey for Australia for a long time and you were in and around it for 17 years, 18 years, 17 years. You've seen a few rule changes in your time. Any that you like, any that you don't like, any that you'd change?
1: I must admit I like them all. Yeah, yeah. I think that the game now looks much better, much more entertaining than what it was uh, probably, uh, yeah, twenty years ago, especially. So the back stick passing, the back stick shot that's come into it is is brilliant. Uh, the overheads, uh, I think that's great. Stick above the above the shoulder, I think it's a good one. Um, probably the my most well, the favorite would be the self pass rule. Mm-hmm. I just think that just adds flow to the game. Uh, one thing I would like to change now um, is the interchange. I would like to see there be a certain amount of interchanges, not on-off, on-off, um, which would be a little bit more strategic, I guess, for teams and for coaches to try and to, try and adapt to that. And it would leave the best players on the field a little bit longer and get people more fatigued. Because at the moment, they're on and off so much, it's hard for people to get really fatigued because once you're fatigued, you come off and you've got a couple of minutes. Mm. Back 15 years, 16 years ago, if I was one-on-one with the player, that was my advantage if I was fitter because I knew he was going to get fatigued and mm. there was the time to, to pounce, to attack. Um, but it was a grime, so it was that one-on-one battle for the whole game, which I really enjoyed. And that's one, one aspect I don't uh, see in this day and age, is a great one-on-one battle between, between two awesome players, mm. um, like you see, I guess, in basketball and other sports. So that's one thing I miss, but overall I have to give credit to the people who have changed the rules. I really enjoy watching hockey these days and it's much different and much more entertaining than what it was 15 years ago.
0: Are there any very memorable one-on-one battles that you enjoyed? Uh,
1: yeah. Was... Well, for me personally, um, a couple against Ternanoia. Um Bjorn Emeling, who I th- rate as one of probably the best player nearly I've ever played against. German guy uh, yeah I remember watching Michael Green and to Neuer go at it Michael Green won 2002 best player in the world from Germany and turn won it I think 2003-04 and those two just 70 minutes against <laughs> each other it's just I just couldn't not look at those two just the whole game where the ball was somewhere else i just watch them and watch, watch what they did um, yeah it's, those ones stand out to me um, but there's many more that yeah Probably
0: I could think of. Mm. And uh, when the back stick or the tomahawk, as it's known now, I think, came in, the interesting thing is that um, nowadays you have all the kids practicing it from when they're three or since they pick up a hockey stick because it's a cool shot, goes goes hard. Um, did you have to learn that?
1: I was one of the first ones who like, was practicing it more often yeah, than okay. not. And because I saw it in Queensland a, a guy there called Troy Marsh who's from Warwick started it, did it on grass. I was like, Well, wow, that's something cool, <laughs> so I went and practice it and practice it. The coaches didn't like it. Um, and I remember coming here in two thousand, my first training with the whole two thousand and four squad, uh sorry, two thousand squad. Uh, Stephen Davies who was like the most capped and most recognised striker my first shot I went in it was a flow through drill th- flow through drill and I did a tomahawk he's like what are you doing don't do tomahawk yet just start to you know hit the ball properly I was like oh ok so I didn't do a tomahawk for for a while <laughs> like it gave me a couple of weeks but um, I hit it sweet too it went in it wasn't like a bad shot but he was yelling at me telling me not to do tomahawk so even from twenty years ago, with the corker virus, mm. the attitude to what it is now and what the game is now um, is completely different.
0: Upright mm. back stick is much more reliable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: and it's such an easier skill. <laughs>
0: two thousand and two, you were. Um, I think it's fair to say that from your debut, it like your career just rocketed. Really, two thousand and two, you were world young player of the year. And then since from there to retirement, there were five um, World Player of the Year uh, titles, which is unmatched, I believe. Um, what, was, what was that progression like? Did you feel like your progression was on that similar trajectory or do you feel like you were always as good just getting the recognition?
1: No, nah, it, it improved a lot. Um, as soon as I put on that Australian shirt for the first time, like I said, I wanted to make every post a winner went hard in the gym, I got fit um, and then the first couple of years it was just great, you mm. know, I was just had no like, I just went out there and played hockey and mm. it just felt free and I could do it, no one knew who I was they didn't know my skills, I knew them I knew when I played against Bram Lomans or these other Dutch guys, I knew how, what they were good at, they mm. had no idea who I was, so I go out there and just go for it and I'd, you know, just a confidence about me that just felt, you know, just great. Uh, so, yeah, I just kept getting better and better. And uh, 2002, like you said, was a, was a great year. Um, I think I played about 32 games that year and scored 20-something goals. And we won the Commonwealth Games, which I hit a hat-trick in the final, the World Cup semi against Holland. I hit a couple of goals. So I just had a lot of confidence um, through that whole year with my, my body, my skills, my game everything like I had nothing to lose you know I've been waiting this my whole life and I was just going out there enjoying it and getting better um so that was that was the first I guess couple of years of my career and then 2003 you know, I went over to Sydney and we got super super fit there's a bunch of guys myself Brent Livermore, Mick McCann, Collins, Scott Webster, a couple others and we didn't we trained really hard and I went from a 15 on the beat test to a 16.4. I went from 5.30 on seconds on the 40-meter sprint to 5.10. Mm. Um, my body was, like, ready to go. Um, and then I got injured, unfortunately, in the lead-up to Athens Olympics. I did my ACL. And then coming back from that ACL, uh, I had some times where I, I thought I wasn't going to make the Olympics because I was, I was terrible. Mm. I couldn't play hockey that as good as what I could. Uh, I didn't have confidence in my body, but leading into 2004, once I got my body right, which was seriously, it was at the Olympics. I remember mm. at the Olympic Games, my knee swelled up again. I was like, oh God, what's going on? I was getting acupuncture and everything, and I thought, Oh, it's just I've just got to go for it, and uh, I can't hold back. Mm. So I went into that 2004. Olympics, just with the same attitude, as probably what I had in two thousand one, two thousand two. Just go for it and mm. see what happens. I hundred percent trust in my teammates and my coach, and I think they had trust in me as well. Um, so yeah, it was a it was a good journey. But my my career through from the first four or five years of really just going for it, getting fit, seeing you know, like just had no. No worries in the world. To 2005, after I had been named best player in the world. To probably 2012 was a period where I had to change because the rules would change. so We had different coaches. Um, I sort of kept improving and kept pushing the boundaries. From after 2012 to 2016, where it was I had to manage my body and manage my workload, manage my balance with my family, and it was a lot harder. Mm. Wasn't as enjoyable, definitely, um, because some days I couldn't do what I could do ten years ago. Um, but on the other hand, I, I still felt like I could contribute to the Australian team, and that's why I kept playing. Um, so yeah, it was a different journey throughout those sixteen years, and had a lot of ups and downs. Um, early on was is definitely much easier than definitely than at the later part of my career.
0: Mm. That time in Sydney, what? Why did you go? Because um, we spoke to Mick McCann about it, obviously, um, in an earlier episode, and it, it seems quite a. It's, it hasn't really been done since, and, it, and it, I don't know if it'd been done before that. Um, why'd you do
1: it? I'd been in Perth for four years, three or four years, <laughs> and I'd established myself in the Australian men's team, I, I thought, anyway. So this opportunity came came up to work at the Sydney Harbour Foreshore Authority for myself and Brent Livermore, and Brent for me was the ultimate professional. Uh, he everything he did um, was to make himself better, a better player, and I trusted because he went, and I trusted him that okay, I'll go as well, and do what Brent does. Uh, just it was just for two years, two or three years, just to get out of the Perth bubble. Mm. Uh, it was a bit of a gamble, I must admit, because it could have went either way. I could have went there, and I could have not improved, and I could have um, like just sort of plateaued a little bit with my hockey career. Hockey for me was still the number one priority. I put pretty much everything else on hold between you know two thousand and one to or earlier than on that, nineteen ninety seven to two thousand. You know, fourteen. Pretty much, hockey was everything to me. So. It was still my number one priority, but we trained really hard. Like I remember one training, Brent said, let's go for a run after training. And we just trained really hard. And now I'm with five, six guys. We had Larry McIntosh, the coach. He was, he was all for it. Like he, we just had a really good energy about us. And Brent said, let's go for a run. I'm like, oh, okay, let's go for a run. <laughs> and we ran for a 30-minute run around Sydney Olympic Park. And it was pretty slow. It was just a nice job. Next training, should we do a run again? All right, yeah, let's go for a run. And then we just got a little bit quicker. And then after about two months, we were sprinting for half an hour around Olympic Park, and then we will do 20 hill sprints at the end as well. And so no wonder where our beep test went from 15 to yeah, high 16. So when I first came over in 2001, I think my beep test was 13-something. Mm. And then, yeah, obviously we did the testing results and all the New South Wales people living in New South Wales were getting high peak tests and fast and all the Perth Mm. guys were like nah, this is not true you guys are cheating blah, blah, blah so then it became a bit of a competition between the New South Wales guys and the WA guys and we had Brent, myself, Mick Adam Commons, Scotty Webster We we were good players but then they could see just by looking at us like, they go, wow, you know, you, you've actually, your body's changed, mm. you, you're looking fit. Mm. So then it sort of spread on to the rest of the, the group, and we sort of created a culture there for a while that let's work really hard and be the fittest team in the world and, and see what happens, and mm. it worked out all right.
0: How'd you get uh, faster? Because I think that's something that a lot of people can yeah, there.
1: We did sprint training, which is something now, a, a young guy asked me what, it, what he needs to do to improve. And I said, do sprint training. Don't, don't do it on the front of a hockey session or on the back of a hockey session. Just go and do two sprint trainings a week now while well, there's not too much hockey on. So we did it um, in, in Sydney. We did sleds, we did quick feet with ladder work, we, uh, we did you know the gym program to make us a little bit faster. And we all got faster. Even Mick McCann, who's one, one of those <laughs> last, last guys in the world hockey, would become... Uh, become pretty electric in the end so yeah it's was, it was just good with that because, and Brent led, uh, Brent led it he's like alright we've got to do this let's yeah. do a sprint training so just, yeah let's do it then there was a month or two months let's do boxing so we did boxing and we just absolutely walking out of boxing couldn't move I could hardly drive home my arms were shaking so those little things which Brent led and Mick and myself sort of just latched on and like let's do this Uh, really it made me have a physical like standard for the rest of my career Mm. and that was harder when i got the last three or four years to to get to that standard but it was manageable so yeah thanks to thanks to those guys and the coach larry who sort of got me in that uh, a level which i never thought i would be able to to get to which helps me mentally which helped me on the field which helped in more ways than just being a fit person
0: mm. is it is that a time that you've drawn on since
1: yeah uh yeah i mean those couple of years i'll always remember and I'll always, i always learned so much when in small groups like that it's a little bit different to cope or like training here in perth where you've got 24 27 guys mm. you hardly see them or speak to them during training these guys you speak to and see the whole time, so we've got that special bond from that group back then. And yeah, I draw on a little bit. I I've, like I said, I, I keep learning, and that period was a huge learning curve for me.
0: Mm. Okay, we're going to go to two thousand and four because we have to um, Olympic year. As you said, you came back with the with a sore knee. And it sounds like you just decided to let the worry and the the doubt go. Once you got there, you were there, you couldn't do anything else. That was, that was as good as you were going to get at the time. But I want to talk about, um, returning from major injuries, because that's something that a lot of elite players, they've got to do it. Even, you know, club players and everything you, you at the top of your game, all of a sudden you have this horrific 10, 12 month injury and you come back and you're not as good as what you were then. Um, but perhaps your expectations were that you would be as good. I'm not sure. Do you remember how you actually got yourself over the hump of of because you had a you had a brilliant. I think you were player of the year in 2004. Yeah, you?
1: yeah, I was. Um, I wasn't very good in 2004 <coughs> because I was coming back from injury, but I was good at the Olympics, and that's probably why I won that tournament. But I'll start from the start. Mm. I had the I did the ACL in 2003 against Pakistan, first game of the Champions Trophy. Um, come out had a bit of a tangle with the keeper came off first five minutes of the champions trophy and th- this was when I was feeling really good mm. um, came off the doctor said oh you've done your ACL you're out for a year and I was doing the math and I was thinking well it's less than a year to go to the Olympics so this could be you know I could be in trouble and then they said oh look you're, you're going to get this done you're probably not going to be as fit as fast you're not going to be as good as what you probably were um, the last couple of years and I was like, oh, that, that's no good. So I <laughs> had the operation done in Brisbane, went home to Rockhampton for a couple of weeks and I was pretty down, I couldn't move around, I couldn't play sport. The Aussie guys were in New Zealand playing hockey, I wanted to be there and that was probably the, the hardest time was after the operation. Then once you once I got out of three months, I after three months I wanted to You know, get into it. So I had a lot of help with the New South Wales Institute of Sport, Uh, the physios there, giving me a program, uh, a lot of uh, one-legged weights and sliding, just to get that stability, a little bit of running on the field, and I just built up a little bit of confidence every week. I had this really top program, which, um, which I was yeah, hundred percent confident with. And then I came over to Perth earlier in 2004 than the rest of the group because they wanted to see me here, see how I was going. I uh, had um, the, the physio here take me down to the beach. I'd do a lot of beach running. And mentally, like, you feel like down some days, and then some days you're up, depending on how your knee felt. I think the biggest thing I learned out of that whole situation, that whole injury, was to read my body and to just listen to your body. Some days my knee wasn't good, and I had to just back off a little bit. Some days it felt good, so I could push it a little bit more. But I, yeah, over those six, seven, eight months, um, I was yeah coming back, playing a little bit of hockey after six months, seven months, played hockey for, Australia, for the Australian team after about eight months. Like I said, I was terrible. Um, didn't think I would make the Olympics. And then thankfully got the phone call that I was in the team, and then, yeah, it was still giving me problems after. The, when I got the phone call, I was in Rockhampton because we had a week off. I went back home and I was with my dad. We were out in the driving range and I couldn't even hit the golf ball. He said, what's the matter? I said, oh, my, my knee's too sore. And he said, oh, okay, let's just go home and just rest it like for three or four days. So I went home, rested. This is a month before the Olympics. So well, maybe a month and a half. So I was really like, oh, I don't know. Maybe I should not go or see how it goes. But it wasn't until I got over there and yeah, trained well, still was swelling but had some acupuncture, had a lot of work on it, Was being, did everything I possibly could mm. to get my body right and my knee right and everything just fell into place and had a really good first game where I hit three goals in the, in the first game against New Zealand and then just confidence
0: mm.
1: came on and uh, I took it on.
0: How important do you reckon is, is confidence? Were you a confidence player? Because um, you look at your career and you're kind of like a hallmark. You're consistent, incredibly consistent. Um, so it's interesting to hear about players who are so consistent to also talk about how confidence can kind of impact the game. But it's everywhere. People are always talking about confidence. What's your take?
1: Yeah, I think you, if you have confidence, it's, it's a great game, But you are the only one who can believe in that confidence, You can go out there and go, yeah, I'm going to win. I'm feeling really good. But deep down, you've got to trust what you're saying is the truth. And to, to do that, you need to work hard and mentally and physically so you're in your best shape possible. Then you do have confidence. And that's why I had confidence for most of my career was because I was physically and mentally ready to go. And if I got beaten, so be it. I was mm. beaten by a better player or a mm. better team. Um, but at least I was at my best. And that's what... That's what made me play well was when I knew, knew I was at my best and you go out there and give it a crack and you never know what's going to happen. But um, yeah, so that confidence is very, very important. And earlier on in my career, I had bundles of it because mm. I was younger, um, just had no, no worries in the world. I had so much confidence and maybe that helped my game. The older I get, the, the less confidence you because you start questioning yourself, your body, your preparation, and, but still, you've got to be able to manage it, and make sure that you are go out there, and, you know, do what you can do, but, confidence for Australians, is, I think, important, you need, you need to have that confidence, bordering on arrogance, and, if you're, you know, like the Americans, they've got too much of it, mm. like they, they all think they're the world's greatest, and they're going <laughs> to win everything, um, but they go out there and perform well when it counts. So I think as Australians, I wish our team and our individuals probably had more of it, but, but real confidence, not just saying it, actually mm. believing it. And that was one difference in the teams that I've been involved in that have had success, to so the teams that haven't had success, is that like in 2004, we had this like confidence, very quiet confidence. We didn't tell anyone, but we all believed like, We've got a good chance here. And same in 2014 at the World Cup. I remember Mark Knowles coming into my room and saying, Oh, what do you reckon? I said, Mate, we're looking really good. Like, we are, everyone's performing well. The confidence is up. Let's just keep riding the train until we win the gold medal. So, which we did. So, I think that confidence is a key, but it's you need to prepare it and build it personally.
0: Mm. And to get confidence in a team, does it require everyone to be like, how do, you, how do you kind of get that critical mass of confidence in the team? Does it start with the individual or does it, is it the coaching staff or what happens?
1: A uh, bit of both. I think you've got to be realistic. And uh, If I see someone at training and they're confident, they're up and about and they're going for it, I sort of feed off that and I go, okay, let's, let's do this. And similar to back to the Sydney 2002, 2003, thousand three, four when I was living there, like, I saw Brent, and he had confidence, then Mick, and then I sort of relished off that, and sort of, it sort of got ingrained in me. So I reckon, yeah, it starts with individuals, and then builds its way up, and then you sort of get this culture where you're confident because you believe that, you know, your mates done the work, you've done the work, your coaches can see it, so you can hear it in their voice when mm. they're doing the team talk, but they can give it to you Mm. and then that just builds you up even more to go out there and perform to your peak and yeah so and you can feel the difference when it's not there (laughs) Mm. vice versa when there's no confidence and I've been in a few teams like that which you sort of want to come across as confident but you, you actually don't believe what you're saying or what your teammates or your coaches are saying so yeah it's a it's a fine tuning thing and it's something that I need to when I, if I do ever become a coach I need to try and manage as best I can
0: do you know how to like in those teams where you don't really feel it is it possible to change that?
1: looking back now maybe yeah, yeah maybe there is but at that <clears throat> time I, I didn't know yeah I, um, and I wish I wish I said different things in different situations when we weren't as confident as what we we were um, but yeah, I mean, it's, every situation is different, every team's different, all the personalities are different, so you need to manage it as best you can. But as an individual, I think if you work hard and you prepare the best you can and you come off with a great attitude and you're presenting a little bit of confidence, um, real confidence, I think that'll feed off the team and, and into the coaches as well.
0: 2004, um, it wasn't a win everything, win the gold medal, perfect fairytale um year i mean you had setbacks you had really close games especially in the olympics incredibly close like it was hanging by an absolute threat at times um in a confident team can those setbacks or close calls do they um feed into your confidence into the confidence of the team or can they actually detract from from the confidence of the team like how do you take those setbacks basically
1: We had a lot of setbacks uh, in 2004. Um, We had a draw against Argentina in our second game. We had a very close game against India where we scored in the last couple of seconds. We had fighting in the team. We had press uh, saying stuff about us back home in Australia. There were a lot of... I was in tears one day when um, (laughs) this article came out and I was just so angry at Barry, for who said it, the coach, and... and like there was a lot of ups and downs, but one thing we did do when you have those confident people, those people who are you know outspoken, and like we sorted it out very quickly, and we just laid it all on the table. Mm. So there was no hiding, and that would have, that could have been the worst thing if we just said no, everything's okay, we mm. didn't talk about it. And there was a problem, we spoke about it, it got worse, and then we spoke about it again. And we sorted it out pretty quickly. So within two days of, of you know, everyone disagreeing with each other, and me and who else was there? I think Michael Brennan and a few of us, Nick even, I think were named in the papers about being, I don't know, arrogant or un-Australian or something. And then my granddad ringing me up and telling me about it when I was over there. Sort of It hurt and sort of hit home, but I think because we had those personalities in the team that alright let's sort this out Mm. and it was bloke to bloke like we just got through it Barry apologized to me Um, he apologized to a few people he apologized to the team we saw you know Barry wears his heart on his sleeve we sort of knew that he knew he made a mistake and he was sorry and then as soon as we saw that alright let's get on let's Mm. get on with it Um, but that's I mean, being a coach in that pressure situation, everyone makes mistakes. I made a mistake, Barry made a mistake, and then sort of tumbles down from there. And then we got over it, and that's because of what we've created and built over the last, well, the previous three years coming into that tournament. And we were, maybe now, because the group's got 27, 30 people in it, and we're not, not as... Um, connected, I get um, connected, but in a different sort of vibe, because we had that just bunch of guys who just said, "Okay, this is it. This is what's going on." We we said, "Okay, let's do it." So, yeah, it was a it was a challenging time at the Olympics. It all worked out in the end. Um, but something that that's happened throughout my whole career. Mm. Like there's been ups and downs, and it's going to happen through your career. It's going to happen through anyone's career you're going to have these awesome moments you're going to have challenging times you're going to have times where you feel like retiring or quitting or chucking it in whether it's injury or fights with the coach or whatever but you got to show that resilience to get through it and you got to your mates got to help you out and you got to help your mates out and the important thing is the communication needs to be uh, really spot on and you've got to 100% trust your coach mm. and your players around you mm. and that's what I had you know, Brent Livermore, Mick, uh, Mike, uh, Mark Hickman, um, Mick McCann, Ralsey, Troy Elmer, all of them I could lean on. And we all lent on each other. And then we had the leader, Barry, sort of guiding us and helping us along the way.
2: Mm.
0: That's it for part A. Stay tuned for part B of the Help Side with Jamie Dwyer. We'll see you soon.